love it. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome if you're here in house, if you're out there online, wherever you are. Welcome. Glad that you guys are here. Um, I want to just mention something really quick. First of all, isn't she cute? I just like, just keep talking. I want to just sit and watch you talk. I, I love that. Um, but hey, oh, um, glad you guys are here. Uh, quick housekeeping thing, just, just real quick. Um, we stream live on three different platforms. We do Facebook, we do YouTube, and we do our own web player that you access through our website. Um, Facebook and YouTube are becoming increasingly problematic to be able to do that from. In fact, I just heard that we are on a one-week suspension from YouTube because Pastor Gabe mentioned Super Bowl. That's not true, but we are on a one-week suspension from, from, face, from YouTube. Facebook uh, muted part of our services, and, and it's all some sort of algorithmic thing on who knows. But for whatever reason, they're doing that. One thing you can count on, though, is our web player doesn't do that. So if you watch, if you're here in house and sometimes you watch us live stream or you're out there um, and you do that, go to our web player. It's, our, it's right on our website, which is discovercommunity.church. You go directly there, click on the watch live, and even if it's not live, our archives are there, and you can see all of our services without having to worry about any cutting or muting or blocking or anything like that. We'll continue to try and work with Facebook and YouTube, but just know if you can't get us through there or if there's parts that are cut, um, just go to our web player. You can always do that. So the part about speaking the word Super Bowl is not true. Um, They did mute us for some reason, so don't try and get us on YouTube next weekend because we're in the doghouse. Part of me is proud about that. Is that wrong? All right. All right. Hey, let's, pride's never a good thing, so don't, don't go there. Hey, um, let's get into the message for today. Welcome again. We're in the gospel of Mark. Mark is just fantastic because he is so straightforward and he emphasizes the humanity and the servanthood of Jesus Christ. And it's so many of the things that Jesus does are just, he brings them down to a human level in such a way that just, it speaks to me. I hope it's been speaking to you. Let's get right into it because I've got so much to share with you today. I don't want to waste a lot of time talking. I've already, I see the clock ticking. I got to get right to it. If you've missed any of them, go to our web player or go to whatever channel you use to watch them and catch the archives of the old messages. There's so much, uh, so much richness in this. But where we are, Jesus is traveling around the Galilee and he and his disciples. And they're performing miracles, and they're healing people, and they're preaching, and they're doing all kinds of things, and just generally creating mayhem for the Pharisees and for the religious Jewish establishment who's having a problem with just about everything he does and the way that he does it. And I think in many ways he does it that way because he knows they'll have a problem with it. Um, But where we see, he's traveling around. Mark 5, chapter 5 is where we are again today, but we're going to finish up chapter 5. Mark 5, 1 and 2 says, They came to the other side of the sea, into the region of the Gerasenes. This was from last week. When he got out of the boat, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit came and met him. So if you're here last week, you heard that story about how this man literally had a legion of demons that were afflicting him, and Jesus delivered him from that with just a word. With just a word. And he drove the demons into the pigs who then plummeted off of the cliff and destroyed themselves. So that's what's going on here, and the people should have been happy, but they were a little dubious. Mark 5.20, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis. He's talking about the man who was delivered. He began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Everybody who heard about those things in the Decapolis and around, they were amazed. The people at the town that had the pigs that were driven out, Not so much. You would think that they should be thankful. You'd think that they should be really grateful for what Jesus had done for them, disaster averted in many ways, but instead they were frightened and asked him to leave. Now, frightened doesn't necessarily mean they were scared of literally what was Jesus going to do, but it's the unknown. So many of us are just, we're uncomfortable with the unknown. Anybody here just love the unknown more than anything? Very few. 
If you are, you're a little, a little unusual. Because most of us, we like what we know. We like what we can expect. We like the usual. The unusual is what these people had just seen, and they weren't exactly comfortable with it. But here's the thing. Thankfully, we can all give thanks for this. Mercy, compassion, and the mission of Jesus Christ is not dependent on our full and complete and sometimes even accurate understanding of how it works. In other words, our faith can be imperfect and we can still receive mercy and compassion and healing. In fact, Hebrews 12.2 tells us Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. What does that tell you? It tells me faith doesn't arrive in its perfect, completed form. Faith arrives, and then it needs to be nurtured. It needs to be grown. We need to learn about it. We can't apply the Pastor Bob method of houseplant care to our faith, which is I bring you into the house, then you're on your own. I found out quickly you have to water them, you have to turn them, they have to be in the proper environment. They need to be nurtured to flourish. And that's exactly what our faith is. You can't just say, I've got it. It was a gift from God. The Bible tells me that. Now I'm done. We need to nurture that. So has anybody here ever struggled with their faith at all? Okay, good. Those of you who didn't raise your hands, I know you're like, I should raise my hand, but is anybody else? We all struggle with our faith from time to time. And it's not like I don't believe that Jesus can do these things. I don't believe he wants to do these things. Sometimes they're just like, I don't know how that works. Even I will do that. Some days, some days I've got that faith that can move mountains. I have no doubt. I have prayed it. It's going to happen. I am rock solid. And yes, Jesus, thank you in advance. But some days I pray that prayer and I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's because I've prayed that prayer before and it didn't get fulfilled right immediately, or at least the way I thought that it might, there are a number of reasons why our faith might not be that rock-solid kind of faith. So I want to ask you, if you've ever struggled with your faith, and I would contend that most of us have at one time or another, what are you doing to be intentional about nurturing and growing your faith? Are you doing anything to be intentional about growing that, or are you just saying, I've got it? Let it go. That's enough. It's not always enough. So we're going to look today at a section of Scripture that illustrates how we can be thankful because Jesus will meet us where we are. Whether we have mountain-moving faith or we have faith that maybe is a little shaky on some of the details, God will meet us where we are. doesn't wait for us to get it right. So we're in Mark chapter 5, 21 through 43. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to go through verse by verse. I use the New American Standard. If you have a different version, it might be worded slightly differently, but you can follow along. We're going verse by verse. Mark 5, 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed by the seashore. Remember, he was in the village of the Gerasenes, okay, driving out the demons into the swine. They don't want him there. He doesn't like to stay where he's not wanted, so he gets in the boat and he leaves. But upon reaching the shore on the other side, which would commonly be the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, he's met by a crowd. And he's met by a crowd so big that he literally could barely leave the seashore. He gets out of the boat and, and immediately the crowd's pressing in on him. That's why it said he couldn't leave. He stayed by the seashore. So that's where they are. Now, as he's there, probably trying to figure out which direction do we go, what do we do, crowds pressing in on him, and we see this happen. Mark 5, 22. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet. This is interesting. A synagogue official came to see Jesus. Now, it's not just as easy as like I bumped into him coming down the street. He had to push through this crowd, crowds surrounding Jesus. He came. Now, probably once the crowd started to realize who was coming, 
maybe parted a little bit to let him through. He was an important guy. But he came to see Jesus and immediately fell at his feet. Now, synagogue officials, some say synagogue ruler, different words like that, is not a priest, and he's not a Pharisee. He's essentially in charge of the day-to-day aspects of both the spiritual and the physical upkeep of the synagogue. He, was, he spent all of his time there, business affairs. He was, he was in charge of what happened at that synagogue, and so he was an important man. He was well-known, certainly, by any of the people that would have been there. They would have known who he was. So he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. Mark 5, 23, and pleaded with him earnestly, saying, now listen to what he says and just feel the anguish in this poor man's heart. My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Now, Luke 8.42 tells us that she was 12 years old. So his 12-year-old daughter at near death. And this man, the synagogue ruler, this proves that not all Jews hated Jesus. But this man had some things to lose by going to Jesus. He had some status. He had some position. And potentially... Even the Pharisees and the high priest would have a problem with him going to Jesus. Remember, they had already pretty much decided Jesus had to go. But this man's career and his position and what he had to lose didn't override his desperation in his love for his daughter, his little girl, laying on her deathbed so close to death he had probably exhausted every other option. He had probably gone to doctors. He had probably brought in the healers. He had done all these sorts of things to try and heal his daughter, but he had exhausted all those things, and his daughter was near death. And so in a place of desperation, he said, I'm going to go see Jesus. That's exactly where he is. Now, there was precedent for this. In Mark, the book of Mark doesn't address the story about the, uh, the Roman centurion and his servant who was near death and who was severely ill. Other gospels tell us that, specifically Luke. But it's interesting to note that there's precedent in Capernaum, which is probably where they are right here. Jesus healed the centurion's servant without ever even meeting him. And we know that the centurion in that story, I'm going to read you the scriptures here in a second, but that centurion loved the Jewish people. So he was a Roman, but he loved the Jewish people. He loved them. He loved them so much that scripture tells us that he actually paid for and facilitated building the synagogue in Capernaum. So he was very, very open to them. And so being the synagogue ruler or the leader of that synagogue Jairus would have very well known this story because in the timeline, this story has already happened by the time we're doing this. This is from Luke chapter 7, verses 6 through six and 7 and then verse 9. Now, Jesus started on his way with them, but already when he had, was not yet far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further for I am not worthy for you to enter under my roof. For that reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then verse 9 goes on to say, now when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. He heals the centurion's servant with just a word. He doesn't even go there. Heals him with a word and there was no way that Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, would not have known what had just happened. He would certainly have known that. The problem is, is that Jairus, the synagogue leader, when faced with that moment of desperation for his daughter, reverted back to the formula about what he had heard about Jesus. And that formula is Jesus lays hands on people to heal them. Jesus touches people to heal them. 
But here's what I've found out. If I've learned nothing else in all my time of scripture study, Jesus doesn't follow a formula. In fact, whenever you figure out a formula, he says, think so? Think you got it figured out? And he'll do something else. Jesus is not one for following formulas. So again, there's no way that this man wouldn't have known that that happened, but he was scared and desperate for his little girl. And Jesus feels that. Jesus feels that compassion in his heart. He feels the sadness and the desperation in this man. And so he sets out with him. Mark 5, 24. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. That term, pressing in on him, is more than just people were following him. Who here has been in a mosh pit before? Jackie, Stan, I know you guys spend time in... Yeah. Okay. Not all of us have. But you ever been in a crowd that is so packed that people are jostling you around and you really can't even control what direction you're, washing, you're walking? People are pressing in on you and pushing you and shoving you and you're being bumped. That's what's happening here when Jesus and his disciples and the crowd of onlookers, they're all walking with Jairus. Now, that's where they are, heading down the streets, bumping, pushing, being jostled, and something interrupts that process. Mark 5, 25 and 26. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but instead had become worse. So this woman, let's talk about this woman for just a second. First of all, we're going to talk a lot about woman problems. So if you're squeamish, I apologize, but it's a part of life. And more than a part of life, it is a desperate situation that this woman is in. Now, most scholars think, we don't know for sure, but most scholars think that she was about 12 years old or so when this condition started for this woman. So she had had it for about 12 years. She was about 12 when it started. We don't know her exact name or exact background. We don't even know. The Bible doesn't state her specific diagnosis other than the issue of blood. We learn later in some translations it says the fountain of blood dried up. And that word fountain actually translates meaning her womb. So that's where this blood is originating. It's a, it's a menstrual problem that she is dealing with. Based on the Greek wording, the situation, everything that we know about it, it's the normal diagnosis now. They call it menorrhagia. And it's a heavy or prolonged menstrual bleeding often caused by issues like uterine cysts. That's what she's dealing with. And she had sought treatment for this through many, many doctors, spent all kinds of money, all kinds of time. And that is, how many of you know there are ailments like, I broke my arm, I need it fixed. And then there's a problem like this, which is just a little less acceptable publicly, right? This is kind of an embarrassing issue that she's dealing with. She would have been extremely anemic and weak, and maybe more importantly, her life would have revolved around this issue. It's not something like, oh, I'm having a bad week. Her entire life to this point would have revolved around this issue. She would have almost no human contact, and that's by law. She wouldn't have human contact. No friends, no family, certainly couldn't have a mate or have a normal life that way. Couldn't have children, certainly. Her entire life and her entire identity would have been wrapped up in this affliction that she was suffering for all of her adult life. Remember, in that culture, by the time you were 12 or 13, they considered you an adult. We don't know exactly the extent of the treatment that she got, but typical Jewish treatment plans for things like this that she would have sought from a rabbi. So there's physicians, then there's also rabbis. She would have sought that. Now, let me read from you a little excerpt of what a, a traditional in that time healing for a process like this would have been. It's a rabbi, and he's writing this kind of saying, here's, here's the process of healing somebody from an issue like this. Take the gum of Alexandria, it's of a tree, of alum, and of Corcus hortensis, so being very specific, the weight of Azuzi each, let them be bruised, that means crushed together, and given in wine to the person that hath the issue of blood. 
But if this fails, okay, next, next choice here. Take of Persian onions nine logs, boil them in wine, and give them to her to drink. And say, arise from thy flux. That word flux is, is just the flow of blood. But should this fail, set her in a place where two roads meet. And let her hold a cup of wine in her hand. And let someone come behind and frighten her. And say, arise from thy flux. But should this do no good, and he goes on and on and on. These are the types of things her life would have been absorbed in various doctors and these types of processes. And unfortunately, her condition was compounded even more by Jewish purity laws of the time, going all the way back to Leviticus. Let me read for you a couple sections. Leviticus 15, 19 and 20. When a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Everyone she touches, everywhere she lies down, every time she sits down, that's all unclean and needs to be cleaned before anybody could ever touch it again. And then going on, Leviticus 15.25 explains what happens if it goes beyond the normal period of time. Now, if a woman has a discharge of her body for many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period for all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. Once this time frame was complete, she would be required to wait eight days and then sacrifice at least two turtle doves to cleanse her of her impurity before then she could even think about rejoining society. Which means essentially for almost every single day, if, if maybe if she got lucky, there was a day or two that would overlap and she could go out in public, but not much. And even then, she had to be waiting, watching the calendar. Can I do it? Can I not? Have I cleansed? Have I done all the right things? Her whole life would have been wrapped up in this situation. She couldn't go out in public. She couldn't touch anyone. She couldn't be touched. That meant that for 12 years, this woman was probably ostracized and quarantined, much like a leper would have been. Here's the bottom line of all that. She's desperate. She's desperate. She's desperate for love, for companionship, and for healing. Mark 5, 27, 28. After hearing about Jesus... She came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she had been saying to herself, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. There's so much wrong with what she did there. First of all, pushing through the crowds, touching everyone along the way, but everybody she bumps into would have been considered unclean. Touching a rabbi, are you kidding me? Seriously unclean. She was risking a lot of trouble if she got caught in here. Now, she'd heard of Jesus. She'd heard about this certain rabbi and the things that he was doing, but none of the healings so far really matched up with what she was going through. Before, either Jesus would come to the person or the person would present themselves to Jesus. Jesus would touch them or speak to them directly, and they would be healed. This, she wasn't even supposed to be there. She should not have been anywhere near What's happening here? She had to try and sneak in, touch his clothing, and back away into the crowd without ever getting caught or noticed. That was her plan. That had to be her plan because she would have been in trouble any other time. So we've heard what happens next. If you've read Scripture at all, here's what happens next. Mark 5.29, Mark 5, and immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately. Can you imagine the elation that she would have? She would have wanted to jump up and scream and high-five and, and be so incredibly thankful, but she couldn't. She couldn't let anybody even know she was there. So she tries to just back away into the crowd and disappear. Incredibly happy, but she had to keep it down and keep it to herself. 
doesn't always work out that way, the way we plan it. Mark 5.30, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power from him had gone out, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Uh Uh-oh. She had to be going, here it is. Because not only is it Jesus and everyone else around, but Jairus is there too, the synagogue leader. Justice and punishment would have been swift and on the spot. She's ready for it. If you have a King James, by the way, it uses the word where it says that power had, had gone out from him. It uses the word virtue. Virtue is actually a translation of a Latin word that it talks about. The idea of virtue in the Latin is the effectiveness of a medicine. The, the effectiveness or the power that a medicine would have, that's the virtue of that medicine. And so it's saying that virtue, that power had gone out of him. The actual translation in Greek is dunamis. Anybody ever heard of dunamis? Dunamis is a Greek word that literally means miraculous power, force, and ability. So Jesus, perceiving in himself that miraculous power, force, and ability had gone out from him. Do you know where else in Scripture we see that very same word used? We see it many other places, but for our purposes, it happens in Acts 1.8. You know what Acts 1.8 says? But you... You, believers in Jesus Christ, infilled with the Holy Spirit, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. You know what that means? The power that Jesus used, the dunamis power that Jesus used, were just touching his garment to heal this woman, to, we'll see in a minute, to raise people from the dead to heal lepers, to drive out demons. That dunamis power was given to you. Raise your hand if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Out there online. You know what that means? You have dunamis power in you, the same power that Jesus exercises here. Do you think we should just sit on it and keep it to ourselves? We'll talk more about that in a minute. It's that same power. Now, here's another question. Do you think Jesus really, when he asked that question, didn't know who touched him? Do you think? Who? Do you think he's like, who touched me? I don't think so. Jesus calls her out right on the spot. Now, some of you might go, that's kind of uncool, Jesus. She's going to be in trouble, and you know it. Why call her out in front of all these people? He does it for a reason. He does it for a reason. Mark 5, when he calls out and says, who touched me? Mark 5, 31, 32, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. Now the disciples traveling around with Jesus, spending time with Jesus, seeing his miracles, seeing all that, they still didn't grasp the difference between casually bumping into Jesus like this whole crowd was and reaching out to him in faith. See, people were bumping into Jesus all the time. The woman who reached out in faith and desperation had an entirely different experience, and that's how it works. You can casually come to church every single week and hoping that you'll just kind of rub up against or bump into Jesus. But when you reach out to him in faith, and expectancy, and desperation, your experience will be dramatically different. Do you want to just brush up against Jesus, or do you want to experience Jesus? That's the moment that you go from being a spectator to a participant in the renewed life that Christ offers. The choice is yours, though. Like this woman, she could try to hide So she could, even when Jesus was asking that question, she could have turned and run or tried to just make herself small and crawl away. She could have done that, or she could beg for mercy. Mark 5.33, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, so balanced the fear and trembling with this incredible elation, like, I know I've been healed, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. When Jesus works in your life like that, answers your prayers in desperation, you have no choice but to fall at his feet. And that's what she does. 
That's what she does here. Given her plan, her plan in her mind, if she even went that far, was to go in, receive healing, and then just disappear back into the crowd. Jesus wouldn't let that happen. If he had allowed her to just sneak away, she might have been tempted to say, I stole healing from Jesus. I snuck in. I was crafty enough to sneak in, touch him, and get out without being seen, and look what I got. He took away by doing that, by calling her out. Number one, her response was to give a full confession of everything that led up to and what had happened. And by calling her out, he took away the option, even the possibility that she would operate in pride. And instead, he gave her a savior. I love that. So instead of receiving either punishment or a bill, which was she was used to, she receives reward for her confession and her faith. Mark 5, 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be cured of your disease. Think about that. This woman, devoid of almost any human contact, ostracized, set apart, lonely by herself, dealing with this affliction day after day in her entire life, goes from someone who's afflicted to Jesus looks at her and says, daughter, calling her into the new family she now is a part of. You are now no longer ostracized and by yourself and and doomed to hide in the shadows. You are now a daughter. It may be the first time she'd heard that in years. It had to mean so much to her. Now, imagine at the same time this is all going on, poor Jairus, whose daughter is near death, and he had come to him in desperation, and he's and Jesus here is getting sidetracked by a woman who shouldn't even be there to begin with. What would you do? Well, what I would do, just being honest, you don't belong here. Why are you bothering him? He's got somewhere more important to go. Jairus didn't do that. To his credit, he didn't do that. He didn't yell at the woman to get away. He didn't pull Jesus through the crowd. But as they're standing there, Mark 5.35, while he was still speaking, people came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher further? Oh my gosh. How would you have felt if you were Jairus then? Like, so close. Mark 5.36, but Jesus overhearing what was being spoken said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid, only believe. He wastes no time in calming this man's fears. Now, he could have, let's play up the drama. Let's just go ahead and let him worry about that while we go, and then I'll go ahead and raise. He didn't do that. He immediately calmed this poor father who's at his wit's end in desperation for the love of his daughter. He immediately calmed his fears. Now, clearly he had faith in Jesus, but it only went so far. He had seen healing. He had heard of healing. He just saw Jesus heal this woman. But that was something that was kind of internal, kind of a private sort of, at least at that point, healing. That could have been something the doctors did. Who knew if it really even happened in Jairus' mind? Resurrecting a dead child, that's something entirely different. So they move on. Mark 5.37, and he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Side note here, where it says John, the brother of James, the time that Mark's gospel was written would have been right around the time when James had just been beheaded. He had just been beheaded and made a martyr. That would have been right about that same time. And his brother was John. At that point when Mark wrote this, James was much more famous and well-known. So he's saying, yeah, you know, John, the brother of James, makes it so real to me when things like that are in there. Like, yeah, it totally makes sense he would say it like that. Mark 5, 38, they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. The daughter had died. People were already weeping and wailing. You notice, we see this all the time, and it's actually a Hebrew custom or a Jewish custom, especially at that time. 
you were expected to have a certain number, an appropriate number of mourners and wailers anytime someone in your family passed away. So this man, by law, would have been required to hire professional mourners. So it'd be okay if you had your family and if you had, you know, moms there and some family, but there's no guarantee they're going to wail appropriately. So you would hire professional mourners. There would be several professional mourners. There would be at least two required by law flute players and then a number of people, and they were paid to weep and to wail and to cause a commotion that was worthy of the status of the person who died. Now, we know that they were already there because the moment the girl passed, they had to kick into wailing mode. Now, they were professionals, hired and paid to do this. So they're probably looking at their watch going, come on, little girl, let go. Let go. We got someplace to be at 4 o'clock. We don't know if they were that callous about it, but they certainly weren't invested in that particular girl. They'd move on to the next person the next time. That was their job to do that. And Jesus saw that immediately. He saw that immediately. Mark 5.39, and after entering, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child has not died, but is asleep. So this, of course, sets them into motion. Now we know that sleep is not something that equates with death typically. But Jesus doesn't see a difference. Dying, sleeping, it's a temporary state. And he says so. This is later. Paul writes this in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as indeed the rest of mankind do, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Now, ultimately, the triumph of Jesus over death would happen on the cross, but that hasn't happened yet. This is a foreshadow of that triumph over death. And we see that. But so they're, they're mocking him. Mark 5.40, and they begin laughing at him, but putting them all outside he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was in bed. These people, these professional mourners, they were not going to be allowed to see this. That's how unbelief works. Jesus calms this storm of commotion by sending them outside. Mark 5:41, and taking the child by the hand, another thing that you weren't allowed to do. As a rabbi, you couldn't touch a dead body. That was another part of the purity laws. He immediately disregards that. And taking the child by the hand, he says to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, almost every translation out there says those words, Talitha kum. That's Aramaic. But it also then, parenthetically, says what that means. Almost every translation says that. You ever wondered why it says that? Like, why does it bother to tell us what that means? Or why not just translate what he said into Greek? He did that. This is another thing that makes Scripture so real to me. He did that because otherwise people reading this would go, okay, the child was dead. He took her hand and said, Talitha kum, write that down. That's the formula for resurrecting the dead. That's what they would have done. That would have been natural. They would have gone, okay, Jesus said that, so we're going to say that. Mark writes that down here. No, it just means, little girl, get up. That's why that's there. People's need for structure, predictability, and a formula is always a problem. We always want to take something that happened once and say, well, that's the rule for how it happens every time. Jesus is not big into rules. Mark 5, 42. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astonished. Yeah, you think? She gets up and immediately starts to walk. Now Mark points out the fact that the girl was 12 years old. There's different ideas of why this is. Some, some say, well, yeah, if we would have thought that it was a baby... 
all of a sudden getting up and walk, well, that's a whole other miracle because she couldn't walk before, but she can walk now. It's not that. He points out the fact that she's 12 years old because that's the age at which the woman with the issue of blood began slipping into darkness. But it's the point at which his daughter was about to enter her life as a woman. That 12 years old is that crossover point right there. The bleeding woman was healed for her own sake. Think about that. She was the one who received healing. She was the one, in fact, no one else really even could verify that that had happened. But she received it, and it made a difference for her. This little girl was healed for her parents' sake. Think about that. Jesus knew where she was going, and it's a much better place than here in Capernaum in this hut or wherever they lived. Jesus called her back from that better place out of his compassion for the parents who came to him in faith and desperation. Heaven is so much better place, he could have just left her there and said, she's in a better place. But he called her back for the sake of the parents. And here's how this section ends. Mark 5, 43. And he gave them strict orders that no one was to know about this. And he told them to have something given to her to eat. Not only was she... Not only did they say, okay, doctor, we have a pulse. Okay, now two more weeks on life support and intensive care, she'll be okay. It's, no, get her a sandwich. She's hungry. How real is that and how immediate is that healing of Jesus? It's not something that just like, let's work on it. Bam, he speaks it and she is healed. Now, again, this is not time for Jesus' triumph over death to be known widely. That happens on the cross. But this woman who selfishly, let's go back to the, to the bleeding woman. She's selfishly, but out of desperation, right? She had no other way to go. She pushed her way through the crowd, making everybody that she bumped into unclean, making the rabbi that she touched unclean, but she decided that her needs were more important than the consequences that she would suffer because of it. Her desperation overrode any potential consequences of ridicule, of punishment, anything that would happen to her. She probably didn't even call it faith. Jesus called it faith. She probably didn't even call it faith. She may not have even understood what faith was. That's how imperfect her faith was. She didn't know the structure around her faith, the rules about how she's supposed to exercise it and the things she's supposed to do, when she can do it, when she can't do it. She didn't know any of that. All she knew is I need to get to Jesus and he will heal me and he will make me whole. And that's exactly what he does. And as a reward, he calls her daughter. Now, many people today in the church. I'm just going to be blunt with you as I wrap this message up. So hear me and hear my heart. People in this church, people in the church worldwide want to get just close enough to Jesus to receive the blessing and the healing without getting messy, without getting too close to get caught up and all of a sudden involved. And that might seem to you like it's working until you're in that place of desperation, where you say, I have to lay it all out there with no thoughts for the consequences of how it looks to everyone around me, and I have to lay it out there. Many people treat their relationship with Christ like that. So, the synagogue leader is very similar. Similar story, but almost opposite in its way, the way that it plays out here. He had a lot to risk publicly by going out. He had a lot to risk, but the desperation was the same. I've tried everything. She's gone or about to be gone. I know Jesus can do this. His daughter was precious to him, and he was desperate, and he didn't care what the consequences of going. He had a lot to lose status-wise going to Jesus, but he didn't care. But in his mind, again, his imperfect faith was he went back to this formula. 
Jesus has to come to my house and touch her. So he went back to that place. And in his mind, once she passed away, it was done. He didn't know that. But imagine his surprise to find out that Jesus wasn't limited by the formula of how it had happened before. So whether we come to Jesus out of desperation, curiosity, or a lack of options really doesn't concern him. Only that you come to him. So here's my question. And I want you to think about this. Do you come to church today hoping to casually brush up against Jesus and having some blessing rub off on you? Or do you come in faith and expectancy that he can and will answer your prayers? There's only those two. Coming to Jesus that way in faith and expectancy is almost always messy. I'm talking snot bubbles, ugly crying messy. When we come in that kind of desperation, it involves laying your problems out in the open for everyone to see. It demands that we set aside pride and realize that we cannot do it on our own. It requires that we repent of thinking that we're better than the person next to us or pretending that we are. Unfortunately, the majority of people are just not willing to get that messy until every option is taken away. Then suddenly, you go from worried about how things look to I no longer care, I just need Jesus. How do I know? Here's how I know this, because during worship, I don't see people on their knees crying out to God. I don't see people raising their hands in the air in praise of Jesus Christ. I don't see that happening all the time. Sometimes, yes, but not as a rule. I see a prayer team that we have largely go unused. Maybe one person or two might stop by for prayer. There should be a line around this church of people waiting to receive that. You know why? Because the dunamis power of Jesus Christ is in you. It's not just our prayer team. It's not just me. It's every one of you who calls Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. So you should come here expecting to give that power to those around you and to receive that power from those around you because that's why it was given to you. And I know that doesn't happen because because I know that many of you who are hurting and in need of that power will head to your cars at the first opportune moment instead of staying here and receiving what Jesus has for you. Now, Jesus is everywhere, but Jesus' people, the depository of that dunamis power, they're here. And so you go get in your car and drive home and you pray to Jesus to solve your problems and he's saying, yeah, I had the instruments of that healing back there, that place you just left. Church, that's why we come to church. Not that you can't receive healing somewhere else on your own, that you can't receive it by yourself, but knowing that that power of Jesus is in all of us, why would you not want to access that? Unless I'm mistaken, and I could be, Maybe everybody here leaves, lives that absolutely perfect, pain-free Christian life. Maybe you have no pain, you have no questions, you have no worries, no concerns. Everything is perfect in your life. If that's the case, then fantastic. But otherwise, the power of Christ in each one of us is going untapped on a weekend. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the things he did and more. Church, let's do them. Let's do them for each other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that is not dependent on our doing it right. Father, I rarely know how to exercise my faith right, but in your mercy, you gladly give it anyway. And so, Lord, I pray that to every one of us here that you would 
Give us the boldness to be able to set aside our worries about how we look, about how things seem to those around us, and give us that desperation for you that says, I no longer care how this looks. I'm going to seek help. I'm going to seek your heart, and your heart deposited in the people in this room. This is where healing starts. This is where blessing starts. So I pray that each one of us would be able to set that aside and seek prayer. Our prayer team is in the back. Look for the lanyard. Our deliverance team is back there if you feel that there's anything that requires that, but they would all be happy to pray for you. Seek them. Don't just head for your car. Don't just say, well, we'll sit through the first song and the second song, we're out of here. Let's take advantage of the body of Christ gathered around us and let's share that. And Father, I just, I repent of those times where I have thought to myself, well, I have a half hour to get somewhere, so I'm, I'll do this next weekend. Let's do it today. Father, we praise you for the things that you have done in us, the things that you're going to do through us. We love you and we praise you this day and every day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to do communion right now. And there is no better way to say, yes, I have received the power of Jesus. I'm thankful for the power in the, of the Holy Spirit in me. And I'm going to say yes to what God is calling me to do. Yes to playing my part in the body of Christ, which is to encourage and uplift, pray for, support, cry for, cry with those around you. When we take communion together, that's what we're saying. Yes, Lord, use me. I agree with what you did. I am thankful for what you did for me, and I agree to my part in this. So let's do that. At the crosses, we have self-serve. You can serve yourself there. Gabe and I will be up here with wine. But as we take that, maybe you just fall on your knees and pray. But I want to encourage you not to leave immediately or as soon as you can. Go back and get some prayer. Turn to the person next to you and pray for them. Let's celebrate that power of Christ in us and let's do that together as we worship him together. Amen? Thank you, guys.